This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. What shape rose? What shape? Corner. That's right. How many corners? How many corners? Good boy. How many? Four. Four. Good parrot. Can you tell me what color? Yellow. Good birdie. Very good. Welcome to Audiophile, Nature's Sound Science Series. I'm Jeff Marsh, and this episode is about my search for real-life Dr. Doolittles, scientists who, like the fictional character from the books, aim to breach the communication barrier between us and the animals. If you've ever really read the Dr. Doolittle books, the man was an amazing naturalist. Meet Irene Pepperberg, a cognitive ethologist at Harvard University, who you heard in the intro with her parrot Griffin. It was a children's story, but he described how if you want to learn how to communicate with snails, you have to look at every little angle of their body and how they're moving different little pieces of their body. And that's the way real ethologists study animals. So there was something very, very true in the basis of his books. Do you think the books set you on to your career path? I don't know if the books did, but I had a budgie as a child that talked. And it was really the only thing that talked to me, because I lived above a store and there weren't any children. But I did love the Dr. Doolittle books. It became clear pretty early on in my research that I wasn't going to meet a real Dr. Doolittle. Not like from the books, anyway, having fully-fledged conversations with animals. But can animal communication systems teach us anything about language? And what else can we learn from talking to animals? I met a broad range of characters on this voyage, some who take great inspiration from the animal kingdom, and some who, as you'll hear, think the entire venture is utterly meaningless. Back to Irene. If we talk to animals, we can really understand how they're processing information in the world. Because if we give them the labels, they can tell us exactly what they're seeing. What toy? Nail, good birdie. Nail, you're right. You want to know? Okay, here. Can you tell me what toy? Ring. Ring, good boy. Yeah, you can have a nut. 
Now, you might be thinking what I thought at this point. Irene's being somewhat generous with her hearing here, but you'll just have to take my word for it that after hearing Griffin's labels a number of times, they are distinct. He just understandably finds it very hard to speak our language. Please forward on any complaints in perfect parrot, Director Griffin. And Irene's used to understanding parrot speech. For decades, she worked with a grey parrot called Alex, who sadly is no longer with us. Alex had a vocabulary of over a hundred words. He could name colours, numbers and types of matter. He understood relative concepts like bigger and smaller, same and different. Together they showed that parrots could perform complex cognitive tasks, rivalling and in some cases outperforming chimpanzees and even young children. Well, I'd always wanted to meet Irene. I'd heard about her. Uh, I'd heard about radio programmes. I also wanted to meet this mysterious parrot lady. This is one of Irene's collaborators, Professor of Psychology at Harvard, Ken Nakayama. It might surprise you to find out that virtually none of the work done with Griffin, the talking parrot, has anything to do with language. Ken, for example, is a specialist in visual perception, and that's where Griffin comes in. What we did with Griffin was we taught him three-dimensional objects by themselves and uh, had them identify them. And then, without any practice or anything like that, we showed him the s- pictures of the same objects covered up. And he did remarkably well. He was able to identify a triangle that was, one point was covered or a rectangle that s- parts of it were covered. And he, he basically v- made very few errors. That was re- very remarkable. No other animal that I can think of has generalized from learning a three-dimensional or real object to these pictures in such a facile way. I saw the data that Irene and Ken got from Griffin, and believe me, it looked really impressive. So naturally, I asked for a demonstration. What shape green? Corner. That's right. How many corners green? How many corners? Green, how many corners? How many corners? Come on, sweetie. How many corners green? How many corners? One. No. (laughs) That was very cute. Training an animal to communicate is so difficult. I mean, people ask me, you know, do you study emotions? And I say no, because I can't give the birds labels that I know represent emotions. But I can give them a label for three-corner because that's a solid thing. I can give them the label for wood because it's a real thing. So you can teach very concrete types of things. You can teach relative concepts, abstract concepts like bigger and smaller. Okay, it's relative. So you can teach abstract concepts like that. And you can get these labels. Okay, and that's what I'm interested in, in doing that. So Griffin's labels are a means to an end, a way of probing his cognitive abilities. And whilst Irene has spent years training him up by talking to him, this work is not related to language per se. But is it possible that by putting an animal through such rigorous training, we could give an animal not just these labels, but the means to string them together into sentences, with grammar? It's a tough project, but it's been tried. Though not with a parrot, but with one of our closer relatives. In the 1970s, researchers at Columbia University began an experiment with a chimpanzee. They wanted to know whether bringing him up with a family of human researchers, much like Griffin, could lead him to acquire language. At the time, language was a hot topic. One big idea was that it was an innate quality and uniquely human. This concept was championed by linguistics legend Noam Chomsky. So naturally, the researchers called their adopted offspring Nim Chimpsky. 
they were well aware that if Nim began conversing, he could have blown Chomsky's theory out of the water. Uh, my own guess, and what I told them at the beginning, is that it's totally ridiculous. This is Noam Chomsky. If uh, an ape had the capacity to acquire language, it would have used it. It would be like discovering that humans have the capacity to navigate as well as bees, but we'd never been told we could do it. So until somebody told us, we didn't do it. At the time, Nim had learned over a hundred words and seemed to be putting rudimentary sentences together. Well, anyway, what happened was they thought that they were achieving a lot. They thought that they were excited about the uh, success that Nim was ha having. At the end of the experiment, there came a point when you just can't keep a male chimpanzee any longer. It's too violent. Uh, so the experiment ended. And uh, they had done everything extremely carefully. So they had a video record of everything. When they looked through it, they examined it carefully. They found that they'd just been fooling themselves. Uh, either there were subtle hints that the animal was picking up, or else uh, the animal was just producing random sequences of signs, and the experimenters were picking out things that they thought they heard. So essentially it was zero, which is what you'd expect. This result seems to have held true. We can't teach a chimpanzee to acquire human language, any more than you can learn bat ultrasound or parrot squawk. But instead, we could learn something from watching chimpanzees communicate with each other. Meet Catherine Hobater, trying to blend into the background in the Bodongo rainforest in Uganda, filming a wild population of chimpanzees go about their daily lives. So I spent thousands and thousands of hours at this point watching chimpanzees sitting under trees, sitting in swamps, um, running through a rainforest, um, just doing what they do on a daily basis. So the purpose of what I do is to try and understand where our behaviour fits into the animal picture. So are we something special? Are humans unique in some kind of fundamentally different way? Or are we just one of the animal kingdom, communicating in a similar way to the way that everybody else does. Language and this rich, complicated, infinite system of communication that we have, we can talk about anything, is something that has been held up as the, something that makes us fundamentally different from any other animal out there. And that would be very unusual from an evolutionary perspective. There aren't fundamental differences that set apart one species from all other species in many cases. So if that's true, then we need to be able to understand that. And we can do that by looking at how our closest relatives communicate and seeing where the differences and similarities might be. It's basically like this incredible soap opera where you have huge moments of drama and you have really subtle politics between the boys where two males will be sitting next to each other and um, a third male will come along and it's all about who does he sit slightly closer to like a centimeter here or a centimeter there and the tension over these tiny little differences can mean the difference between becoming an alpha male in a month or losing your losing your best ally to somebody else most linguists by contrast see human language as unparalleled in the animal kingdom 
They don't see any point in comparing humans with anything else. But Catherine and other comparative psychologists are not so sure. They see similarities between human and animal communication. For instance, chimps seem to communicate with intent. When they're communicating to another chimp, they are doing so to that other chimp. So they're not broadcasting information to the whole group. They're picking their target and communicating to them. And they're doing it with a goal in mind. They want to achieve a specific outcome, which is changing that chimp's behaviour. And we've known that for a long time. Chimpanzee gestures have been studied for more than half a century. So it came as a bit of a surprise to Catherine that no one had asked the question. What do these gestures mean? When we're talking about communication systems, it seems like your starting point. But it's actually incredibly difficult to answer what do you mean when you're talking about another species. Finding out what's going on inside the head of another species is a really complicated thing to do. So what we did was go out for several years and just film chimpanzees gesturing to each other. And we'd look at the outcome. Uh, So what does the other chimpanzee do when they receive that gesture? And for us, the key thing to understanding this whole system is what's the behaviour that stops that chimpanzee from gesturing to the other one? And we looked at hundreds and thousands of cases and put those patterns together to see if we could work out what the meaning of those gestures were for the chimps. So this makes sense. I would gesture to you to stop talking during my podcast, and if you kept nattering, I'd keep gesturing. But as soon as you'd understood and stopped talking, I would of course stop gesturing. It's a pretty neat way of decoding meaning. Now, I know you're probably gesturing at me at this point to shut up so that Catherine can teach us some gestures from her chimpanzee phrasebook. Here's a few. Some of the gestures are really intuitively familiar to us. Um, If I bring my hand towards my body and fling it away from it towards you, um, just as you might do to uh, say shoo go away then it's exactly the same with the chimps and it actually has a really similar meaning it means go away back off stop doing what you're doing and those are the kind of gestures that when you see them seem kind of familiar to the sort of things that we do but they also have a lot of different gestures so young chimpanzees will pirouette to um stop playing or they will uh, stomp their feet or to request for something or male chimpanzees and sometimes even the girls will take a few leaves and tear them in their mouth to make this kind of noise and that's basically chimpanzee flirting it's a pickup line it's you know come over here because i'd quite like to be able to take you away somewhere now guys technically i've just told you how to chat up a chimp please be responsible with this information But on that note, with this phrasebook compiled, I wondered whether there is ever any scope for a gestured chat with the wild chimps. Had I found a potential Dr. Doolittle? Um, When they gesture to me, it's massively tempting to want to engage with them, but but I don't. The whole point of me having spent thousands of hours sitting in a swamp at this point in the middle of a rainforest, miles away from my family and friends, is that I want to understand their natural communication to each other. I don't want to influence that. I don't want to affect that in any kind of way. So I'm trying to be this neutral observer that's basically just kind of a, I don't know, a weird part of their environment, some kind of slightly strange tree that follows them around every day that they don't interact with and they have no interest in. So at least in part because we don't fully understand their communication system yet. So there's a distinct danger that you're going to say the wrong thing if you tried. Um, And you definitely don't want that happening with wild chimps and their wild chimp mothers out in a rainforest. Why? Um, You might get your arm torn off. 
Okay, let's leave the wild chimps where they belong in the rainforest. But still, pretty cool that chimpanzees seem to have up to 70 gestures that they convey with the intention of conveying a message. Eerily human, I'm sure you'd agree. But is that where the similarities end? Primatologist Katie Slocum would say no. Chimps have a rich tapestry of communication, including gestures, facial expressions and vocalisations. And Katie thinks that their vocalisations work a lot like words. Or, more technically, their referential labels, sort of words that they use to represent physical objects in their environment. So we know that chimpanzees' food calls are referential in that they um, refer to very specific types of food and other chimpanzees who hear those calls understand what they mean. Um, But it was always assumed that the structure of them was kind of to do with excitement. Um, So if they liked the food, they would be high-pitched and if they didn't like the food, they wouldn't be. So we had a unique opportunity when 11 Dutch chimpanzees um, arrived at Edinburgh Zoo and were then integrated with the 11 Scottish chimps that lived there. Um, And at the beginning, we found that the Dutch chimps loved apples and so when they saw apples they gave these ah, 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 calls. Uh, in contrast the Edinburgh chimps never really very keen on apples um, and they gave these much lower pitched ah, 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 calls when they saw apples. Just for the record Katie is definitely human, definitely not actually a chimpanzee. And so we thought well what's going to happen here? Are they going to continue to give their own kind of version of this call um are they ever going to learn to give the same call who's going to switch um so what we did is we then tracked the chimps over time um and so we came back a year later so they'd been living together in an integrated group they'd had chance to listen to the other group's calls um and much to our disappointment nothing had changed ah well it was starting to sound like the chimps referential label for apples might just have been as previously suggested a simple measure of how much they liked them But hang on just a minute. However, the social data at that point showed that actually, although they were living together in the same enclosure, they didn't actually really like each other. So they weren't really grooming each other and they weren't really spending much time together um, across these two original subgroups. Um, So we then came back three years after integration, uh, where the social data finally indicated that they liked each other. And then we re-recorded their their calls for apples and much to our... um, delight, we found that actually the Dutch chimps had changed their calls to sound much more like the Edinburgh chimps. So now both groups were making these uh, 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 calls when they found apples. Um, And really interestingly, um, although they changed their calls, the Dutch chimps' preference still hadn't changed. So they were still loving apples, but giving the calls um, much more like the Edinburgh chimps. So chimpanzees seem to have words for things, or at least referential labels, and the structure of these labels can be modified. But the ultimate reason for Katie's work, and many other primatologists like her, is to deepen our understanding of where our language came from. Because obviously our language is jam-packed full of referential words. So we have lots of words that refer to very specific things, most nouns. So bottle, computer, table. We all share an understanding of what those refer to. Um, And so we're showing for the first time that these referential uh, calls in chimpanzees, there is a degree of control over the structure of them. And not only that, they're learning it from others. Our closest relatives seem to be using the same fundamentals in their communication as us. Surely these parallels have some bearing on when and where certain aspects of our language came from. Back to Noam. I think it's completely meaningless. I mean, I suspect if they actually look into it, they'll probably find that uh, the experimenters are interpreting it as 
using a word to refer to things, but the ape's doing something quite different. There's lots of evidence for monkeys and apes using these referential vocalizations in the wild. And in this research, they seem to have a word for apple. And so do I, apple. Doesn't that suggest commonality? Well, actually, the fact of the matter is that apes, and in fact other animals, have a closer approximation to what is technically called reference than humans do. Animal communication systems, as far as is known, the symbols that are used have a one-to-one correlation with physically detectable circumstances. So, uh, say, a vervet monkey has maybe half a dozen calls. Uh, One of them, which we interpret as a warning call, is a reflexive response to leaves fluttering in a certain way. Uh, Another one, which we interpret as meaning, say, I'm hungry, uh, is a reflexive response to some hormonal change. There's a one-to-one correlation between the symbols and something detectable in the mind external environment. That's simply not true for human language. So our words, uh, the simplest ones, uh, river, tree, house, uh, apple, whatever, uh, do not have that property. Human language just simply does not satisfy the referential criterion. In fact, that's one of the many radical distinctions between human language and animal communication systems. In fact, they're so different that there's just no possibility that they have any relation to one another. Noam sees words more as concepts or symbols for thought. So maybe a word like apple refers to more than one thing for us. It's a smell, it's Eden's poisonous fruit, it's something you give to the teacher you have a crush on. But whether that's fundamentally different to the way the chimps refer to an apple is up for debate. But Noam goes one radical step further here. He thinks human language is not a communication system at all. Although it's used for communication, it's not a communication system in the sense that animal symbolic systems are. It's basically a system of thought. But of course it can be used to communicate, like your style of dress and your, the way you keep your hair. and Anything you do can be used to communicate, including language. Uh, but it's not... That most of language, most use of language, in fact, is just internal. 99% of your use of language is when you're, uh, you think what we call talking to yourself. But the reason it's assumed that it must be a communication system is this great chain of being illusion. We have to have evolved from, by small steps, from earlier uh, hominins. Not necessarily. It could be big changes along the way. Do you think there's just like a sort of semantic problem here where linguists have a a more robust definition of the word language? I'm sorry, but linguists are making the same errors. A lot of the work on what's called evolutionary of languages by linguists, most of it I don't think makes any sense at all. It makes all of these mistakes. One linguist making all these mistakes has his office right next door to Chomsky. Awkward! Joking, they're actually close friends, but they do think very differently about what animals might teach us about language. Noam thinks that animals can't be a meaningful analogue for humans, because in his opinion, language evolved very quickly, basically from nothing, and it happened very recently, long after our split from the chimpanzees. Which I guess is hard to prove or disprove either way, because language of course doesn't fossilise. 
Next door to Noam's office was Professor Shigeru Miyagawa, who thinks that language, rather than popping up out of nowhere, built on pre-existing communication systems in the animal kingdom. He's developed a whole new theory called the integration hypothesis about the tricky issue of where language came from. Human language arose from something. You know, it didn't just appear uh, uh, out of the blue. And uh, uh, we know that primates have been communicating with each other for millions and millions of years. We know that birdsong uh, has existed 300 million years. And there's got to be hints in those systems uh, from which we can surmise how human language appeared. I look at human language as we know it today. I also look at systems employed by uh, monkeys and also systems employed by birdsong and uh, try to come up with a hypothesis that is just as broadly compatible with what we know about today's human language and uh, uh, primate communication and birdsong. Shigeru's new theory for the evolution of human language is called the integration hypothesis, and it's based on two pre-existing systems that we see in nature. One is uh, what you see among monkeys, uh, what I call the lexical system or the L system. And that system is made up of uh, basically words, isolated words, like eagle and uh, leopard and, um, uh, and snake. Okay? Uh, the important thing is that these are individual items in isolation that refer to uh, something in the real world. The other system is uh, what you find in birdsong, what I call the E system or the expressive system. Uh, birdsongs are simply patterns. These are song patterns. Each song doesn't have specific meaning. Uh, so Nightingale may sing up to 200 different songs, but each of those songs doesn't have a specific meaning. Instead, they sing to convey one of two or three intentions, the most uh, common intention being the desire to mate. So there you go. As Shigeru would have it, we get our words or lexical system from some common ancestor with the apes and our syntax or grammar, the so-called expressive system, from songbirds. Just to be clear, Shigeru's not saying that humans, chimps and birds share a common ancestor when language first glimmered into life, but that these systems, which have presumably existed for millions of years in birds and apes, uniquely came together in humans to form language. We're the only living creature that has both of these systems integrated into one unified system. We know that human language is made up of these two layers, words and syntax. Okay, so one could, you know, where did they come from? Okay. Uh, it just so happens that monkeys have the word system and birdsong uh, has uh, the, uh, the syntax uh, that uh, is very similar to human language. And so uh, it's very compatible with what we find. Uh, but now we need to find more empirical evidence for it. One thing that's come out of my search for Dr. Doolittle's is that a lot of researchers interested in animal communication systems, especially those interested in language itself, would like to collaborate more with linguists. This received mixed blessings from the two that I met. I just had lunch uh, with an evolutionary biologist, and we had exactly the conversation that we've got to collaborate, we've got to find common language to collaborate, because Biologists know so much that we don't know, and yet they need to know about human language if they're going to figure out exactly what happened in evolution as far as human language is concerned. So yes, we have to collaborate. 
First of all, there has been such interaction for about 50 years, extensive conferences, studies, and so on. Nothing much has come out of them. Back in the 1970s, I was teaching courses here on biology of language with a Nobel laureate in evolutionary biology. Nothing much came from it because there isn't much to say. The reason nothing comes out of it is because these systems appear to be dissociated. It seems that in some instances, the greatest communication barriers are within our own species. But leaving academic squabbles aside, let's go back to my original question. Will we ever, like Dr. Doolittle, communicate with the animals? Your dog understands certain commands, you know, sit, heal, fetch. I mean, those are things that you are already communicating with your dog at those levels, all right? And what we're doing with, a, with other animals is giving them the ability to communicate back. I think we can communicate with other species. I think we can do that in a really simplistic way, the way that we do with our dogs and cats at home. We can also try to understand their systems of communication and use them back to them. So we could hypothetically gesture back to a chimpanzee if we really wanted to. Um, But whether or not we could get inside their minds, ask them the kind of questions that we're interested in as humans, is a different kind of question. Because essentially, it's a very human-centric question. We could communicate with them, but... Maybe they don't want to communicate with us. Maybe that's just not something relevant or interesting for them. So I think we can certainly communicate with other species, but whether or not we get out of it what we're looking for, you know, we're not necessarily going to sit down and have a chat about philosophy at any point with another species. That just might not be relevant to them. Say better. No, that's not a word. You can have it if you tell me what matters. Say better. Blue? Are you trying to say blue? It's blue. That would be new for you. Can you tell me what matter? The color is blue. The color is blue. Can you tell me what matter? Say better. That's it from this edition of Audiophile. I'd like to say a big thank you to all of my contributors in order of appearance, Irene Pepperberg, Ken Nakayama, Catherine Hobater, Katie Slocum, Noam Chomsky and Shigeru Miyagawa, not forgetting Griffin, numerous chimps from the Bodongo rainforest and an unnamed nightingale. Music composition came from Jay Marsh, full disclosure, he is my brother, and a track jazz comedy from bensound.com. And lastly, for those of you who are interested, Shigeru Miyagawa, the linguist you heard towards the end there, has just launched a set of free online courses, or MOOCs, on the integration hypothesis, as well as one on bird and one on primate communication systems, which are now open for registration at www.edcast.org. Thanks for listening. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. 
For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to trylifemd.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.